Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. So I'm not wearing the batteries today. Thanks to Jenny for getting me the audio. The last one. All right, that was great. Um, we were talking about uh, what the mechanism might be. And I talked about how the mechanism basically for kin selection. Right? How do you recognize, perhaps recognize, but... How do you act nicer to relatives than to non-relatives? That's basically what I'm asking. So we talked about the... Uh, it's easy for the father or mother of a child. It's especially easier for the mother of any offspring. Uh, especially easier if there's internal fertilization and internal gestation. gestation. Right? That's going to make it especially easy for the um, mother to recognize. Now, for everybody else... In other words, like, how do you recognize your cousins, your, 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 your brothers, sisters, whatever? Trevor's come up with this idea of the green beard hypothesis, which would be an allele that produced a green beard, a hypothetical green beard, and also had a mechanism for detecting said green beard. Um, this might be kind of hard to do with a single gene, but the idea here is that the gene makes the characteristic and also makes itself recognizable. And now able to recognize itself. We're talking about gene level selection here. Um, another way to look at it might be families. Dave, yes. By the green beard one, is that like when you recognize your kid has a nose? Is that what It could be something like that, except that you'd also, that same, by Trevor's green beard hypothesis, that same single gene, he's talking about a single gene. He's talking about gene level selection. The single gene that would create the kid's nose would also create the mechanism for detecting the kid's nose. Right? And for something like that, it's unlikely. However, there are characteristics. We talked about the the song in those different kinds of crickets. And it seemed like that the, there were, you know, the hybrids and all that. Uh, it seems like there's something to it in that case. So there may be times when the green beard hypothesis makes some sense. Um, when you look at something like proximity, in species where there's very little dispersal, <clears throat> excuse me, so you have families growing up together, basically. This could be all, there's all kinds of species like this. You could then basically go simply on proximity. The closer you are to me, the closer you live to me, the more likely you are to be related to me, and therefore the more likely I'm going to be nice to you. Right? So you're going to be right? If you're from Sault Ste. Marie, you're going to be nicer to somebody from Echo Bay than you are to someone from Blind River. And we're not talking clearly here about something, but specifically humans. This could be anything. So the mechanism actually could just work like this. You can see how this could be selected for because it would help your genes, even though it's not about recognizing your genes, but it just works through probability. The more closely, uh, the closer you are to me in the space where you live, the more likely you are to be related to me. So you just have a mechanism that detects perhaps how often you've seen another individual. Here's an example. There are leafy ants, a lot of those, 
They use root science and they tend to live on a single plant. And ants will fight each other. So if you take two colonies that are from faraway nests, they're more hostile to each other than two colonies from nearby nests. If you take animals, so ant colonies, from different plants themselves, they're going to be more hostile than they are from ones that are on the same plant. These are very tiny little ants, by the way. So this is a case where you've got like, well, these ants are, I'm not saying the ants are necessarily recognizing individuals, but there's a mechanism there somehow that's like, I've ran into your kind before and we know you're closer to me. And again, the ants aren't thinking this. Pretty sure about it. Now, there's a neat experiment you can do here. People have done this where you take a colony and you split it into two, and then it becomes two colonies. And you put it on two different plants. And you grow on these two different plants for a few generations and then put them together. They're hostile to each other, but they're not injurious. In other words, they don't fight to the death. But, so what that says is you have a gene environment interaction, right? Because they obviously somehow are recognizing individual genes. They must be. Why would they be less hostile? That's crazy. They're still hostile, though. And that's perhaps the proximity mechanism. So you've got a proximity mechanism, and you've probably also got some mechanism of actually detecting genetic relatives. Right? That's pretty cool. That's your classic gene-environment interaction right there. Inverted monkeys, two-year-olds, uh, you know, the infants, I guess they're probably toddlers, inverted monkey years at that point, uh, scream when they're in any danger. The mother goes and gets them. So they do alarm calls. Mom goes and gets them. The others don't do anything. They watch the mother. So if it was like, okay, everybody's always detecting their individual, uh, or basically everybody replies or sort of responds to an alarm call the same way, and this is just an alarm call from the kid, the same way, <clears throat> then everyone should come running. But that's not what happens. Mom comes, and the other one's standing there around going, well, it's not my kid, I'm not gonna, I don't want to interfere. You can raise your own bird monkey any way you want. So again, there's a mechanism there for recognizing that's not my young. And these are other mothers, by the way, that will recognize. Not just, you know, juveniles and males, etc. So that's pretty striking, too, because that's saying there is a mechanism. Now, again, do I know what the mechanism is? Well, no, I don't know that anyone does. But somehow mothers recognize their young by their screams. <coughs> It isn't just the fact that you got a screaming monkey, which is the name of my punk band in the early 90s. Right? So it's not just that the monkey screams, and you can people, and monkeys kind of run. Swinging or whatever the hell verbal monkeys, though. 
The other ones sit around and watch. They all look at the they think it's too. They all look at the mother like, are you going to do something that is your young? So they notice it. They know it's an alarm call. They look at the mom. Hey, you going to do something? Because we're just going to hang out here. We'll watch you. I'm sure you'll take care of it. So I don't know what the mechanism is. This could be, again, proximity. The mother's been with the young and vice versa for a very long time. So maybe the case that the others recognize this isn't mine, but then they also seem to know that it's the other mother's. Like it's that that's her kid doing that. So somehow they're recognizing it too. So this could be a cognitive type, type mechanism that's learned over time. That's that that one goes with that. Right? So they're obviously recognizing relatedness. I love bees. I love research on bees. Bees frighten me. Social insects that sting frighten me. They're organized and they can hurt you. I, I just it kind of scares me. Uh, Greenberg uh, has done some neat stuff looking at relatedness of bees and allowing them into a hive or not. Bees have all these... Uh, in bees, there are different um, jobs in a beehive. Okay? Some go foraging... Uh, some care to the to the young. Uh, some guard the nest. Some t- literally are like garbage men or women, I guess, because they're females. The males just sit around doing nothing. So they actually go around. They clean the beehive out. They take like uh, dead bees and throw them out of the hive and stuff like that. There's all kinds of different jobs in the beehive. One of the jobs is guard the entrance. And only lay in. Members of our own hive, if somebody's attacking, like a bunch of wasps are attacking to, to, to eat us, we're the first line of defense. Right? And they all line up and they try to sting a wasp and they all die, but they give up their lives, of course, for the fact that their hive is all very related and they're super sisters to each other. If you ever get a chance, I uh, think. Was it Blue Planet had a, a, some great close-up photography of a, of, a, of a raid on a honeybee nest by a bunch of hornets, and the bees lose. <laughs> but after a while, so many of them have given up their lives stinging these hornets that the hornets go off and they're they're hurt. They still usually win because the hornets are way bigger than the bees. It's pretty impressive and disturbing. It's like watching Starship Troopers. But there are ones up front that are like gatekeepers, okay? So what does Greenberg do? Greenberg takes all these bees and figures out their relatedness to each other by crossing and back-crossing and all this other neat stuff. So look, we have here average coefficient of relationship. One would be you and yourself. like So you and a clone. You and an identical brother uh, or sister. 0.75 is your standard super sister with each other. 0.25 would be a male. And this is the probability of letting them pass through. Whoops. And as you can see here, it's a straight freaking line. It's pretty much a straight line. Right? This should impress the hell out of you. Somehow these guard bees are detecting relatedness and the probability of them letting you in 
is proportional to the product. In fact, it's, it's almost a one-to-one relationship. It's beautiful. You're leaving me like point two. Well, there's a two in ten chance I'm going to let you in this hive. It's, it's blow away. Right? So somehow these guard bees are detecting the relatedness of the, the perhaps they're intruders, perhaps they're relatives, who knows? But they're letting in some but not all, but they're doing it on a sliding scale, and that sliding scale is directly proportional to the amount that they are related to each other. That's, that's neat. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> it's pretty impressive. They're probably doing it through motor. This is, this is the best guess. It's probably a genetically determined odor, and you know, sometimes you're going to carry the gene that has the, that, that makes the odor that says, oh, you're one of my kin. And let's say, because you might wonder, well, if it's, point, if it's less than 0.25, there's no way it's a member of the hive, because it can't be a brother. So there's no way. It should, it should just drop off. Yeah, but it's probably the case that that means there's a 0.2 chance that that gene is there. So perhaps two times out of ten, one of five, even though it's unrelated, they've got the right gene, they let them in. Unlike when the wasps or hornets come in and they just they kill. Are <laughs> oh, you not letting us in? We're not on the list. Zzz, blizzed. Ugh, bees, bees talk, but they just go zzz all the time. The movie Ants really bothered me, even though Woody Allen was in it, because they were all males and bugged me. Even though it's kind of funny. I sat there the whole time watching with my wife and my daughter. You know, they'd all have, they would all have female voices if they could talk. Such an idiot. Sharon Stone is the queen. Somehow that worked. Woody Allen is one of the ants that was great in Sylvester Stone's another one. Okay. So there's a lot of possible mechanisms here. I don't know what they all are. But I mean, we can even look at uh, proximity and detecting relatedness like in humans, and we know that, for example, the idea, excuse me, the idea of mating with a brother or sister is disgusting to us. We actually have that reaction. But it even is to an adopted brother or sister, and that is actually a great mating opportunity. You know that person really, really well. You know their faults. You know what's good and bad. Why not? Because there's some mechanism that says you grew up together, stay away. And this is cross-cultural. When kids are adopted into other families, then that what the family is, it's like, no, now we no touchy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right? And in fact, this has even been found when kids are raised communally. So when kids are raised communally in uh, kibbutzes in Israel, which are kind of like big commune kind of things, and the kids are raised communally, and the parents tend to do work on the kibbutz, which is kind of like a big communal farm, community kind of deal. But the kids are raised communally, and they're, they're loved, and they're uh, they get excellent education, all this great stuff. It's really, it's really idealistic. It's sort of a, um, uh, I think a socialist area. But they're uh, having a good time, you know. Everything's great. And it's a political social movement, too, so kids are actually encouraged. You know, you should marry a kid from another kibbutz, because this is the thing. We want to make this thing keep going. And kids have been, people have been living probably up to millions of people over all the 
last whole hundred odd years that they're linked to what's been living in Israel and what was not Israel before then. It wasn't Israel. Um, kids have been encouraged to marry within a kibbutz. And you know how many times that's happened? Fourteen. And you know what kids, what kids report? Well, they're kind of like they're all my brothers and sisters. It's weird. No, I can't do that. And sometimes we take the simplest markers as being similar or different, right? In humans. As being like us or not like us. Even though we, as I mentioned, I think in the first class, that we are genetically not very different from each other. We're, there's less genetic diversity than us than almost than pretty much any other animal. But the smallest thing we will notice, and we use them as like, oh, you're related to me. And this probably goes back to our hunter gatherer days, right? Oh, you wear different face paint than me. You speak a somewhat different language than me. So we take these markers that are obvious that probably in some sense when we were hunter gatherers and had no contact with other family groups, clans, tribes, or Mughal, might have made some sense. Now they make no sense whatsoever because of all the intermixing of the humans, which is a good thing. So we use behavioral markers. We use skin color a lot, right? We know about that. There's racism in the world. We use language. We use religion. All these things. So it's sort of, in some respects, it's almost not a... uh, um, an excuse for or a justification of, but an explanation, a functional explanation of racism. Right? You can understand racism. You can also look at it and go, it's disgusting and I'm not going to behave that way. Right? But you can also recognize that people do it and there might be an evolutionary reason for it that made sense a great long time ago and might even make sense now. Right? So it's still wrong. This is the last time I'm going to go through all these machinations to make sure you understand I'm not condoning racism. Right. They said it was okay to burn a cross on someone's lawn. No, I didn't. But we know this happens, right? We know that people are, are uncomfortable around people that look different than them. Right? Speak different languages, whatever. The neat thing you should do, and you can do, is when you're in a situation like that, is say to yourself, I will not behave that way. I was lost in Chicago once, and I thought to myself, I'm going to go up, let's see, everyone here, I'm the white guy. So, uh, that's a little weird, because I'm hardly ever a minority everywhere I go, but with living in North America. But most people, while people are pretty selfish, most people will give you a break. I'm going to walk up to a really scary guy and ask him how to get back to my hotel. And I thought I was like six foot six, maybe about 230. Yeah, I'm looking to get back to the Palmer House Hotel. It's not a problem, brother. <laughs> he tells me, go on this L train, go here. And thanks, you know. And I thought to myself, I shouldn't have been nervous. First of all, probabilistically, the chance of you getting in a, in a crime situation is always slow. Right? That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, why should I, you know, practice what you preach, Dave? He's just a person. And then turned out to be that. That was funny. Palmer House Hotel. It's ridiculous. Have you ever seen the movie The Fugitive? Yeah. The one with Harrison Ford. And then he breaks into the thing. 
and the guy, the guy with one arm is there. You know, the one-armed man that, that, that gets him, uh, uh, that can exonerate him from killing his wife. So this is a, a conference, our conference, Midwestern Psychological Association is going on. So is the retired Catholic school teachers of Chicago conference. <laughs> and I'd been drinking because I was at a conference. And I was with a friend of mine, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? That's the, that's the ballroom where Harrison Ford breaks in and yells, you killed my wife. I said, I'm going to do that. He said, I said, you can't do that. I said, well, you should watch me. I said, well, you're the one-armed man. And, um, that actually was really loud. But it was something, I, the only reason I did it was so I could tell that story. You know, I said, you're going to get in trouble. I said, ooh, a bunch of retired Catholic teachers are going to chase me. What's going to happen? Stuff I probably wouldn't do now, but when I was young and foolish. <laughs> All right, so things about inclusive fitness then. Um, group selection is really quite silly, first of all, because we have a better way of explaining it. Individual selection is cool. Gene level selection is very cool. So we can talk about now relatedness. And it seems to me that that's probably the level we should look at. Now, typically, as a short form, we can look at individuals. We can look at individuals. But really, it's probably happening at the genetic level, selection. Uh, Bill Hamilton is a genius. Right? Comes up with this inclusive fitness idea. Beautiful. You will do something, look, you, based on costs and benefits and relatedness. Which is exactly what those bees were doing, right? I don't overuse this, though. I mean, you can. Again, it's, it's the little warning of being a rapid adaptationist. You don't walk around and say, well, am I going to. It's, 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 uh, I, how much Christmas present should I give this person versus this one? Well, I should base it on my genetic relationship to That's a little silly you probably do. But uh, don't, don't, you know, don't make those calculations. Let, let, let your unconscious kind of mind do that. And then sometimes realize, oh, I'm doing that. And that's not really how I feel. Let's not, let's not behave that way. But it does give us some insight into some nasty human behavior, things like, like racism. It doesn't you know, absolve it, but it gives us insight into it. And I mean nasty things like, you know, genocide, things like that. The difference is, like, Hitler tried to use these kind of ideas that he didn't understand what he was talking about, um, saying that this was, this, you know, evolution, this is why you should kill all the Jews, things like that. And I've heard people say the same thing. There's a Darwinian process. We shouldn't feed poor black people in Africa. Let them starve. I've heard people say that. They tend to be right-wing. And I don't mean right-wing like say Stephen Harper. I mean like crazy right-wing. You know, I mean like British National Front right-wing. Crazy people. Neo-Nazi type people. That actually don't. You could look at them and say, have you ever actually read any Darwin? And they go, well, I've heard of him. And that's enough for me. So, like social Darwinism, that's crazy, right? But this guy, this idea is going to give you some insight into nasty behavior. All right. Shifting gears a bit, now there's going to be math. Don't be too afraid, it's really simple math. But it is math. 
So animals will tend to behave in ways that maximize their inclusive fittings, right? That makes sense. In general, they will tend to behave in ways that maximize inclusive fitness. And this is usually a pretty straightforward thing. It's a pretty straightforward decision the animal has to make. And when I say decision, it's again sort of a short form. I'm not saying the animal's consciously deciding this. But the animal has a decision to make. Should I eat now or later? Should I meet now or later? These kind of decisions. There, there tend to be binary decisions, and there's a right answer and a wrong answer. There's not two ways to do it. There's a right way and a wrong way. Do I meet with a male or a female? If I'm a male, well, if you're trying to pass on your genes, you probably ought to meet with the opposite sex. That'll work better. Don't take that as an anti-gay comment, man. Sometimes, though, we got to know what others are doing before we adopt a strategy, right? So this is like thinking about those fish, right? They're, they're the males that are that act like females. It only makes sense to do that if most other males are acting like normal males. Remember, I said that strategy is only adapted if it's rare. So I don't know what everybody else is doing first. Or at least have a good guess, and then I will do something. Right? So, what if you're mating call? So, it's, it's mating season, and you're doing a mating call. You're a male calling for females, and everybody else is mating too. Doing mating calls too. Maybe your mating call isn't very good. Maybe you're like I was when I was young, younger. I don't think it's still any good, but I got married, so it's fine. All the other guys, you know, I was just sitting in the corner going, you know, women hate me, which I found out later, chicks don't dig. <laughs> what I should have been doing is stealing all my friends' wallets at that point. Right? I should have thought of another strategy. I right? said, so let's do something else. I'm not going to get uh, a mating opportunity tonight. Perhaps I can get some free grace. <laughs> So what do you do in that case? Well, maybe come up with another strategy. Maybe do something else. Or maybe come up with another mating strategy. Maybe I should have pretended to be a, a female. Befriend them, you know, that kind of thing. Which would perhaps help me understand women. Which is it's never going to happen. So in certain cases, the payoff, I think this is a game now. Called game theory. So I think this is a game. The payoffs, hence the fitness maximization, depend on what other populations are doing. Does it make sense for me to do this now, given the fact that someone else is doing other things and how many of them are doing it? Think about this you're, you're signing up for a class <clears throat> that has a lab component in it, there's two labs you can choose from. One has a lot of people, one has very few people. <clears throat> well, if you're, if you're the kind of person that kind of wants to slip under the radar, probably getting into the lot of people one makes sense. If you're the kind of person that's saying, yeah, I think maybe a little bit more individual instruction. I go into the smaller ones. So you're doing what depends on your behavior is depending on others' behavior. And this is the same kind of thing. We can't really use the basic principles of fitness maximization we've thought of until now, which is the idea of, you know, whatever the uh, costs are outweighed by benefits, I'll do it. We can't just do that if the payoff to one individual depends on behavior of others. 
It becomes more complicated, basically, than just Hamilton's simple calculation. It just becomes more complicated. You're still trying to use fitness maximization, but now I have to also put in what are the other animals doing? You've got to find out what the alternatives are and the probability of encountering those alternatives. And this will become quite clear, I hope, in a second when I give you the ultimate example of this. And then what the consequences of that encounter are. You know, think of this like a game. You got to think of this like a game. Each individual's behavior is a strategy, and the payoffs are in units of fitness. You guys know, let's say, for example, a prisoner's dilemma. You might have talked about that in social psychology. You know, this is the idea that if uh, the cops have caught both of us. Right? We've done a bank job. They've caught both of us, because we clearly look like a couple of great robbers. But um, she's the brains. It was all her, Your Honor. I had nothing to do with it. So they're, they're interrogating us separately. Right? And they say to us, if you're rat on the other guy, you'll get off with nothing. And he's going to get three years. Yeah, you don't keep your mouth shut, nothing's going to happen because they don't have anything else. They got nothing on me. What are you wearing? Freaking wire? I always wanted to say that. So they got nothing on us except they, 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 they suspect it. You know, the cops, you watch the cop shows, right? They overplay their hand. They always say, they act like they have more than they do, at least on TV. So they, 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 they tell me you know, that they, they, they know that we both did it and she should rat out on me. Now, if she keeps her mouth shut, and I keep my mouth shut, we're not getting anything. We're, we're walking. We're back on the street, man. <laughs> if we both ride on each other, what happens if we both ride on each other? Well, that means we both did it. We're going to get maybe five years each, but it turns out she said, it was all his idea. And I don't say anything. I'm going to get ten years. So depending on what, I don't know, I don't know what the hell she's going to do. And she's kind of squirrely. I don't trust her. Um, so the outcome for both of us depends on how the other one behaves. So what do we do? We keep our mouth shut? But see, if I keep my mouth shut, and then she snitches on me, I'm going, I'm going to the can. I'm going up the river. Should they still use that expression? Probably not. I don't know. I didn't do the prison. I'm just basing this on movies I've seen. Attica. <laughs> so you see, depending on depending on what the payoffs are, maybe it's a small crime. Maybe we just really maybe we just got chocolate bars at Max. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't really matter in that case. Or maybe we kill the guy. And you'll never know. So we must keep our mouth shut, we're fine, but I'm kind of thinking, what the hell is she gonna do? 
she going to keep her mouth shut? Is she going to talk? So I got it's really, it's a tough decision. And this is the kind of thing we're talking about. So that's the prisoner's dilemma. You might have heard of that before in social psychology. Um, it's the same kind of idea here. The payoffs, instead of being on units of time in the slammer, are fitness units. And the players produce more players and actually make offspring. And the changes in fitness are directly proportional to the payoffs. That's sort of, these are sort of the basic rules of the game, okay? So this isn't a horribly complicated thing if you think of animal behavior like a game. What's called an evolutionarily stable strategy, in other words, one that's going to stay around, is one that, when adopted by enough individuals, maximizes the payoff. Now, this can be this strategy can be one. Uh, I'm going to slide. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, a strategy like that can be something that it's the only one that works. It's the only one that works, right? So, a pure strategy is one that cannot be replaced. This is kind of a, this is a boring example, right? The food story example that I think I've told you about before, um, you have to recover your own seeds or food story disappears. Right? So part of food story behavior is, and in birds and other animals, is that they have to recover their own caches of food. If they don't, it disappears. This is why we know they use memory. This was the first hint that they probably used memory, let's say that. So there's Anderson and Krebs, 78. John Krebs, who was now a lord in the British House of Lords and a knight. And the principal of Jesus College at Oxford University. Okay. So he's got the coolest email address ever. Principal at Jesus. <laughs> Dot act, dot ox, dot act, dot UK, I think is that right. Baron Sir John Krebs. And the idea that I know a guy who's got a title like that makes me kind of happy. And I know, I haven't seen John since he got his knighthood, and I know he's been asked it before, but when I do see him again, which I guess it'll happen at some point, I'm going to ask him if he has a suit of armor. Because I have to. Because I want to think, you know, how often do you get to meet a guy you know who's a knight? Braves for crabs, you know. <laughs> so if they recover communally, a selfish order, we, 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 now we know if they were playing communal, it's like everybody just stores seeds in a big NDP paradise. It's socialism. Actually, nature isn't like that, so if I won't be lazy. But yeah, you guys all recover your seeds, you're not storing seeds, I'll, uh, I'll just sit here and I'll say, oh, you know what I'll do as well? of sex with your wives. You know, so my strategy's gonna win. Nature's not a socialist paradise right through the club. So we know that would replace that pure strategy. And the reason food storing can't exist is because they recovered their own seeds. And they used this kind of modeling, mathematical model saying, how do we do we know how can this work? The only way it can work is if they're recovering their own seeds, if they're actually being selfish. Right? It can't be communal. It's impossible. Because even if the communal story showed up, which it could, some mutation, it's going to disappear very quickly. Because a selfish hoarder that only recovered his own seeds 
or her own seeds, or even just a lazy bird would would win every single time. This is a great example of group selection versus individual selection. Group selection say, yes, we're all going to be communal. It's going to be like we're all going to sing kumbaya and, and you know share. No, you're not. Maybe with your relatives. Maybe, what did you say is one that can't be replaced? When it can't be replaced, it's a pure strategy. Oh, what can't be replaced here? Well, why can't be replaced? Uh, it, it couldn't be replaced in this case because, in fact, they're recovering their own seeds. So it works because it goes with the speed of other adaptations. They don't migrate and stuff like that. But, for example, it could be replaced if there was a selfish order and everybody else was doing communal. But then the selfish hoarding would replace it. Or just being a loafer would replace it. Right? Just sitting around going, yeah, I'll recover your seeds later. It's standard. Okay. The way it works now works pretty well because what happens is I recover my seeds, you recover yours, and everybody's happy. The fences make good neighbors, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like that. Now, mixed strategies are way more interesting. Hawks and doves. Now, these aren't about real hawks and real doves. Okay? It's not hawks fighting doves. It's not some kind of weird war between species. These are strategies. You may have heard of the expression somebody being a hawk. When somebody's a hawk, what that means is, uh, in political terms, they favor military action. And when someone is a dove on an international thing, they, they, they don't favor military uh, intervention. It's a term for the Vietnam War. Divided people up in, in administrations and stuff like that into hawks and doves. That's where the terms come from. So these are not real hawks and doves fighting. Because I don't think that would be much of a contest. Now, so a hawk always fights and a dove always gives up. Okay? That's what the strategy is. That was weird. See that light just flashed for a second? That's some kind of warning? <laughs> Skynet just went online. <laughs> doo, 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 doo. <laughs> we should watch that right now instead of this. I know the Netflix. I love to live. It's a great movie. Come with me if you want to live. We have to look at the payoffs of always fighting or always giving up. Okay? And then look at the costs of fighting and the costs of giving up. Is there a cost of fighting? Well, obviously, it's going to be you get hurt. Is there a cost of, 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 of being a dove? Yeah, you're not going to get stuff. Or even if it's dove versus dove, maybe they have some kind of display. No, you take it. No, you take the resource. No, please, after you. That's a cost. Determine what proportion should be hawks and what proportion should be doves. That's what we're going to do here. And this is very cool. I love this stuff. This is one of my favorite things when I took the undergraduate uh, in all behavior course. It was my favorite part of the course. Because there was math. It's not hard math. Okay. So let's say it's all doves. Right now we have a population of doves. What do doves do when one runs into another 
And there's a resort, so Jordan's coffee cup, whatever's in his coffee cup, and I come up to him, and I go to take it, and then we have a little contest. We don't actually fight. We display to each other. You know. And eventually, whoever's doing it better is like, you know, you really do your... It's like a dance-off. You know, it's like a Zoolander. You've seen Zoolander? It's a cat to walk. Oh, I think I'm getting the black Why, that is ridiculous. I eat one at least three times bigger than that for people. <laughs> it's a horrible, stupid movie, but I love that. Ben Stiller could just be sitting here being serious, and I'd be laughing my ass off. <laughs> Everything he does, I find funny. We should get him in on already, great. Imagine that. With you. I mean, who cares why he wouldn't come? And he would. Nominations are due soon. Could you now just get Ben Stiller and just get up there and be an ass? <laughs> Starting to seriously consider it. Um, hawk, what happens when a hawk shows up and it's all dust? So we're all being nice to say, no, you take it, no, you take it, no, you take it. And then Mijo, who she's a, he's a hawk, she comes in, she goes, oh, take it, and kicks her ass. Because you can see from her personality. Uh, so Neo Jeans, sorry, I like um, Because it wins, right? That strategy, it's going to win every time against a bunch of doves. Because doves, they're, they're lovers, not fighters. <laughs> so now suddenly more hawks show up. It's hawks galore, it's a hawk around. But now you're always fighting. Because when you show up and you're a hawk, and it's a dove, the dove's like, oh, okay, no, 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 I don't want it. It's okay, you can have it, man. Right? Would you like my watch as well? You, you don't want to. But now, if it's suddenly it's a lot of hawks around, they have to start fighting you. Before the hawk can show up and just say, take it from dove, no, it's mine. Like a bully kid taking your lunch money. I don't know, what do I do? But then the bully strategy, the hawk strategy, starts to spread. What happens? Now hawks are fighting hawks. Now you got to fight. Sometimes you're going to lose. And we're going to make this simple by saying the probability of injury was 0.5. In other words, the injured party loses. Okay? And the, and the winner doesn't get hurt at all. So it's, it's a little bit simplistic. What's that? Oh, I'll go tell him right now. I think I told him that to his face, actually. So no, 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 no. I love overheads. Thank you. He says thank you all the time. Yes, yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming to class. It's like, okay. Frankly, it's a good day. Now you show up. Nothing happens. I get to go back to my office and watch Netflix. I watch Terminator 2. I'm definitely watching that time. <clears throat> so now you're fighting all the time. The probability of injury is 0.5. It's bad. Now being a dove actually pays off. Because I'm not ever going to get hurt, am I? Right? You guys are all hawks. Y'all show you're fighting each other. I'm just sitting back over here going, everything with me is cool. I'm a bit of a coward. But 
I'll just sit over here while you guys kill each other, and I'll reproduce. Thank you. Right? It's sort of like that idea when you, when, whenever you hear like one crime family is hit another crime family, you think to yourself, oh, that's a shame. And <laughs> there are those bystanders who were hurt. And so they're thinking, oh, you, that's often you think, oh, there's a gang war going on. No one who got badly hurt, but there's three gangsters in the world. That's horrible. It's an outrage. So not being in love pays off. Either strategy is good, but it's rare. When it's common, it starts to suck, right? Because when it's common, it can be replaced. When it's rare, it works. So it's going to fluctuate up, back and forth. So far, does this make sense? Again, remember, these are not actual hawks and actual doves, they're just strategies. They can be any animal at all. Yeah, Jordan. Uh, I'm not sure if this is true. I think I saw somewhere that they apply game theory to like economics now. Oh, but game theory is used everywhere. Yeah, it's in fact economic decisions are, are a lot of times about game theory. Like, what's my like think of it as a business? What's my competitor doing? Um, I can be like my competitor. I know that strategy works because they're a successful business. I know their strategy works. I'm just going to copy. But what happens is when something's rare, like for example, I'm going to be just a little bit different than everybody else, then that strategy blows up and it suddenly wins. And eventually things sort of settle out. But yeah, game theory is used in economics, it's used in all kinds of things in animal behavior, uh, it's used in uh, anything where a decision is made, is made now, people are using game theory. Um, what, does, what do you mean when you say that when it's common, it can be replaced? When a strategy is common enough, some other, in this case, if everybody's a hog, being a dove pays off because I'm never fighting. So now I can replace hogdom with dovedom. My doveness starts to spread out to the world because I get reproduction chances because I'm not getting hurt. Now, on the other hand, if we're all doves and you show up and you're a hog, you take all our stuff. So if it's very common, the other strategy will replace it. Make sense? So it always goes back and forth. Yeah, it's going to fluctuate. And eventually, let, let's see if we can find a place where it's going to be at equilibrium, where the two strategies are stable. Okay, now we're going to do some mathy things. V is the value of the resource for the winner. Because they're going to fight over something. They're going to fight over something. W is the cost of a wound. T is the cost of a display. That's that's the that's the two two doves get together and they start displaying each other. It's a strange display I just did there, but this is why the lectures are recorded not on video but just audio. That and I'd need a cameraman. That's John Maynard Smith stuff, and I can say great biologist. This is sort of his thing. He didn't get game theory, but he, his idea of the hawks and the doves and using it for ESS, as it's called, evolutionary strategies, stable strategies. Maynard Smith, brilliant guy. 
Okay. We're not using that P for in, in injury? The, the P's going to be there in a second because P is the probability of an injury. Right? So let's set up the payoff matrix. Get the matrix reference there, anybody? Thank you. Okay. So if my opponent in the contest, let's so first of all, if I'm a hawk, just the payoff for C button, and I go after a hawk, well the, yeah, the probability of injury is 0.5. So there it is right there, that's the coefficient here. A half times the value of the resource minus the wound I'm going to get. Right? So you get something, but you also get hurt. And half the time, I'm going to win. What happens if I'm a hawk and I fight a dove? I just get the resource. I don't have to fight. If I'm a dove and I run into a hawk, the probability, what about my payoff? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I didn't lose anything, but I don't gain anything. I don't win the resource. What's the, what happens if I run into another dove? Well, what happens is half the time I get the resource, half the time the other dove gets the resource. But we both have to spend all this time displaying to each other. Does this make sense? Make some sense? Okay, you're good? So if W is greater than V, there can be no pure ESS. In a population of hawks, a small number of doves would do better than hawks, and vice versa. So if the value of a wound is bigger than the value of the reward, fighting over the reward is a waste of time and the hawks disappear. Right? The expected value of a dove running into a hawk would be greater than a hawk running into a hawk, even though that's zero. Right? Remember, a dove running into a hawk gets nothing. But it's better than two hawks fighting, right? And the wound costs more than the value of the resource. So getting nothing is better than getting less than nothing. Okay. Yes? What does ESS stand for? Evolutionarily simple strategy. So we know that the expected value of doves running into hawk is zero, the expected payoff, but W is greater than B, it's going to be less than zero. Okay. Basically, at this point, because the wound is so costly, the resource isn't worth fighting over. If it's not worth fighting over it, if your strategy is fighting, your strategy will disappear. It must.
Make sense so far? I told you the math wasn't that bad. You got no greater than signs. How do you know greater than? It's that the alligator's mouth always points to the biggest piece of food. That's how I was taught it, like grade three, and that's how I still remember it. Here, isn't it? <clears throat> Teaching tricks like that, I taught it to my daughter when she learned it. She, you know, my son, because he's got autism, metaphors don't work so well. He starts looking for alligators. So, you know, sorry, son. Um, that way means less than that. He's bigger than Like you say to him, that's a piece of cake. He looks at you and goes, there's cake? He did use his first metaphor in the summer, or simile, which was, that computer's frozen like an icicle. Okay. Okay. Payoff to a hawk is V. That's the value. This is a pure, pure doves, by the way. Payoff to doves is less than that. This is about minus T. And you need, this has got to be time. This has to be a positive number. So you're taking something away. So what proportion of hawks and doves balances this out? Because pure hawks and pure doves doesn't work. It gets taken over each time. So at first I was doing that just sort of intuitively. You look at this mathematically even, it shows. The pure hawk or pure dove doesn't work. So what proportion of hawks and doves balances this out? Find the proportion of hawks, portion P of hawks, uh, of hawks of hawks? <laughs> of hawks such that the following equation balances. P times half V minus W equals 1 minus P times V. Because P is the portion of hawks. So 1 minus P is the portion of doves. You're simply solving for P here. In this case, we do some simplification. We get P equals V plus 2T over W plus 2T. Isn't it hard to quantify some of this stuff? Oh, yeah. This is completely theoretical. But I'll show you a couple examples in a second where you... With box and dogs, this was a thought experiment by me and this one. Right. But these techniques, these game theory techniques and payoff matrices have been used. Uh, pretty successfully um, to predict some animal behavior. Because we can look at the nature and say, look, there are mixed strategies. We know that some animals do this and some do that. So let's say V equals 10. So what you do here is you say, well, V equals 10. What's the value of the resource? It's 10. What's the cost of the wound? Let's say it's 20. Let's say the time to do a display is three. Now we can say what the opponent in the contest gets. Payoff received by a hawk from a hawk is negative five. It's bad. Hawk for dove is ten. Dove to hawk zero. Dove to dove is two. Did you say T is time? T is time to display for when two doves run into each other. So what I'm doing here is, when I say apply it, that's why I said sort of, because I just, I just made up, I picked three numbers and put them there. 
and put them in the equation. So, you know, you can take any three numbers other than that. Go back into that formula. People 16 of 26 are 8 thirteenths. In other words, with those payoff values, 8 thirteenths of the population would be hawks. Meaning that 5 thirteenths would be doves. If those were the payoff values, that would be what we would expect to happen in the population. The values actually aren't that important because, again, this is a completely theoretical exercise. So the values aren't important. What's important here is you can determine at what point which strategy can coexist with another strategy in an ESS. And you can then eventually apply this kind of stuff. It's not like you can't do it. But the point is that for this sort of theoretical exercise, the original one, Hawks and Dubs, that this can be done. This also doesn't have to be proportion of the population employing a strategy or another. This could be proportion of time spent with one strategy or another. So 8 thirteenths of the time be a hawk and 5 thirteenths of the time be a dove. So you may be asking yourself, so? Um, it's actually applicable, and this is what Julie was just at, asking. Okay, these are toads looking for breeding grounds as babies in Halloween 1979. I nick babies, so brilliant in this kind of stuff. I don't know who Halloween is. Probably knows more than I do. So basically, and I'm not going to go through what the calculations were, but the payoffs were determined here. And we can see here, change the percentage of male toads found searching in spawning sites during the breeding season. Observe values, closed circles, using the closed circles here, um, can be uh, compared with the percentages predicted by the ESS model, right? Um, the open circles. So I'm not going to go into how this all worked, because I, I don't have it in front of me, frankly. But the model predicted... At what, what, are, what are the different strategies? At what time of the year should you be in the mating grounds? Right? That's what the, what the model's predicting. And look what it does. It does pretty well. That's doing pretty well. Thumb flies. These are flies that live on poop. Somebody's got to live there, yeah. So should a male hang around as it gets older? It being the male, not the, not the crap. I guess the crap's getting older too. Well, again, how long should you stay? So a number of female gunflies observed by captured uh, searching males at different sites. So basically, you're hanging around there because we also know, as, as, as I think we all know, among dung flies, 
females and males, they hang around big piles of shit to mate. That's what they do. So how long should I hang around? When are the females showing up? Where are the lady shit bugs? That's what the males are asking. So they hang around and they're thinking, they're looking around, should I leave early? Peaks here, right? But see, it still works here, but there are fewer and fewer females. So should I stay or should I go? It's like the, it's the eternal question asked by the Clash in 1981. I like that they use distance from cat circus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't say poo or shit. Somebody had to measure that. I know. Some were probably volunteer undergraduate. That's, that's typically the jobs they get. Oh, you want to work in my lab? Go measure the crap over there in the field. As I said when I was in graduate school, when I was cleaning up bird cages and we were full of bird shit, I said, you know, in the brochure about become a scientist, no one mentioned bird shit anywhere. So this is pretty cool. Again, you can see that it works every time. All these different things work, but it depends on, it's going to depend on how many females are around. And there's a lot of other examples where ESS modeling has been used. So it's really quite cool. Uh, that's an exceedingly brief introduction to game theory. Uh, if you take 3107, behavioral ecology, uh, Dr. Henry from biology is teaching that, and if you find that stuff interesting, I think probably a good portion of the courses about stuff like that, that kind of modeling. So go nuts, take that down. This is really powerful stuff, this kind of approach. Um, now you have to sit down and think about costs and benefits, costs and payoffs of different strategies, and what's the likelihood of running into another strategy? And what happens when strategy A mixes with strategy B, like fights it? And we did a simple two by two, hawks and doves. But as you saw there, um, there were a lot of different times you could mate, for example. So you might be dealing with a matrix that's, you know, it's six by six or ten by ten. In my um, in our final exam in animal behavior in undergrad, we were given a little scenario and we had to make up a payoff matrix and then figure out what the probability would be. It was just a three by three. And that even took, that, that question took half an hour to do. Because you had to just sit down, and you were told everything. But you had to think about what the equations would be, like what the values would be. It wasn't that hard. It's as hard as it is. But it still takes time. And doing this for first principles, when you don't know that, when you're not told it on an exam question, it takes you a long time. Modeling can be hard. There's another, we have to think about this too. Right now, with ESS, all I'm saying is that if I run into you, this happens, and run into you, this happens. That's it. What about if I run into you, this happens, but then when that happens, that changes everything else for everyone else? That's probably more realistic, isn't it? Right? So instead of just being if I'm a hawk and I run into a hawk, we fight. If I'm a hawk and I run into a dove, I take your stuff. But what about if, I'm, if I fight with you, that affects both of us later, something like that, which makes more sense. Like we've actually fought. So maybe I'm not going to be quite as successful later on. Those models don't take that into account. That's something called dynamic programming does, and this is the idea of constantly of having all these variables change values all the time. Uh, it used to be people knew about this idea theoretically and thought, well, it makes a lot more sense, and also said, yeah, no, don't have the computing power. Now people have the computing power. 
So you start to see dynamic programming models show up a little bit more. Um, they have a lot of complexity, and they explain a little bit more data. So the question then you have to ask yourself is the complexity um, worth it? Right? But people have had a lot of success with these things. Questions? Okay. First day with the new lips. Remember the other evolutionary theories? There's Lamarckism. Ah, Lamarckism. He's a guy from France, he had a huge long name. And his name was Pierre de Lamarck. This is the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Giraffes really wanted leaves, so they stretched their necks out really long during their lifetime, and then passed that characteristic on to the young. This sounds really stupid, but a lot of people actually thought, think this way. You must have heard this. We're going to have really giant heads and small bodies someday. And the question I would ask you is why? Because people say, well, we'll use our heads and our bodies will atrophy. And we'll pack. If, if something atrophies, are we passing that on to our young? If I think a lot, I mean, I think I do think a lot. Hell, when my daughter was born, I was a, I was a, I was a postdoctoral fellow. I was like the height of my thinkingness. He's a bright kid. Yeah, and again, I was an associate professor when my son was born. Bright enough, I guess. Hmm. I don't think they inherited anything I know, though. Right? Cave swelling. It should be cave dwelling fish. Cave swelling fish are bad. What they do is they go into a cave and they just swell up and fill up the whole cave. Uh, so cave dwelling fish. These are fish that live in a cave, not fish that swell up in caves. They might, if they're infected or something. I don't know. Infected cave dwelling fish. That's another band I was in. Um, so cave dwelling fish... Don't have eyes. They don't. They don't have eyes. So people say, well, so because of that, they didn't use them, so they disappear. That's not how it works. How old is that period? Uh, that's early 1800s. Before our. So it made sense at the time. Yeah. You know, you look at it and go, eh, it's not bad. Thing is, keep going fish don't have eyes because eyes provide no advantage in a cave underwater because there's no light. So why have eyes? What are eyes then? They're expensive to make and to maintain. And they get infected. And then you become a cave swelling fish. So I did that on purpose. Or the other one, one of my favorites, we don't use our appendix anymore, so it's disappeared. No, we don't use our appendix. Our appendix doesn't digest anything anymore. And having an appendix is now deleterious because it has no advantage. And sometimes your appendix bursts and you die. So Lamarckism is wrong. The thing about it was that uh, evolution for a long time wasn't accepted in like Stalinist countries. They didn't like it very much, like in the Soviet Union, because they said, there can be no struggle in nature. Nature is perfect. There's no struggle in nature. Class struggle only happens with humans. Cannot be struggle. So they based a lot of their research on Lamarckism. What we will do is we will put wheat in we will put wheat in cold room and then plant in Siberia. 
Way to go. How'd that work out for you? Is there a Soviet Union anymore? <laughs> no. Now, they did get away from that pretty quickly. But understand, Stalin was like, I can know things science. I'm Stalin. <laughs> I don't know. That's my Stalin impression. Sounds vaguely like my Ishtar Imre impression, which is not fair because I don't think he'd look at it. Orthogenesis, this is the idea that there's a goal. As soon as that's the selection, you have a lot of people hated it. A lot of people said, this is really cool. I like it. Because what it says is everything's striving to become human, and then humans, and I've even seen ladders like this. You ever heard of an evolutionary ladder? It's not a ladder, it's a tree. But there's a ladder, and then at the top, well, there's humans, of course, because who invented the theory? But then we're, you know what, we're trying to become angels. And angels are trying to become God. It's an excellent scientific theory. Who are you so wise in the ways of science? So it's just stupid. <laughs> it's wrong. You might have been told this. There's a ladder. Please, I hope I hope no one was told that. Like biology in high school, there was a ladder. If you are, you can go back and beat up your biology teacher. I think I was. Oh, people have been told. Catholic that. school. I was told. I was told. Yeah. I went public school. This guy misunderstood evolution, completely misunderstood evolution, but taught us about recombinant DNA in teaching biology. So, it's very strange. Of course, it's intelligent design, which is creationism with a fancy name. And if you take a look at the origins of creationism, of intelligent design, uh, the people that started the whole idea up, they did this to make a religious point. It's not trying to do science. And then they this is my favorite thing ever. Well, not my favorite thing ever, like it's not as good as really at stake. Um, so these intelligent design people found some scientists they said proposed evolution. Um, and they published this name. I forget the name of the group. The Discovery Institute might be the name. Might be, I might be wrong on that. And they published this list of Scientists that question evolution. First of all, some of the names on there aren't names of scientists. Secondly, some names are just thrown on there. And they went and asked people, they said, I don't know what you're talking about. And some of the people really are. There are some. There are also people that believe in ghosts. So you've got 10% of people believe Elvis is still alive. You've got to keep all these things in mind. Those surveys show that among biologists, 99.85% accept evolution. And among all scientists, 95% do. But that scientist includes computer scientists, economists, people with educations, actually, yeah. So you know what? A group started. They, they started a group uh, to fight that Discovery Institute list. People named Steve that accept evolution. Because they figured that'd be longer, and it is. It's, it's tens and thousands of people. Just named Steve. So they found biologists named Steve, and they're more than the ones that apparently are opposed to it. And it's not a scientific theory. You throw the supernatural in that case, but into something, it's not science anymore. It ceases to be science. It's it's religion. Question about that. Alright, remember I told you about the last paragraph. Of Darwin, so I brought my iPad with. This is great. It is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank, clothed with many plants and of many kinds, with birds singing in the bushes, with various insects flitting about, 
with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other and so dependent upon each other, often in so complex a manner, have all been produced by the laws acting around us. These laws, taken in the largest sense, being growth, in which he capitalizes, with reproduction, inheritance, which is almost implied by reproduction, variability from the indirect and direct action of the conditions of life, and, and form, use, form, use, and disuse. A ratio of increase so high as it to lead to a struggle for life, and as a consequence to natural selection, entailing divergence of character and extinction of less improved forms. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, from the exalted object from which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the highest animals, directly follows. There is a grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers. Um, with its several powers, while well, this planet has been circling according to the fixed law of gravity, from some, some, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. They got to go. And if you don't have a sense of wonder at nature, this is one of the criticisms you will often hear about people that like this crap. Where's your sense of wonder? That puts tears in my eyes reading that. You probably hear my voice crackling there. That is amazing. Hearing and thinking about the intricacies of how these simple processes and game theory. It's not as simple. And the simple processes have led to all of this. And if that doesn't blow you away, uh, you got no harm. And I'll see you next time.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.